A Tricky Kid Media original presentation distributed by iHeartRadio. Welcome to Tricky Kid Radio, where the past and the future meet the present for a fun mix of yesterday, today, and tomorrow, hosted by filmmaker and DJ Roy Turner. Hey, joining me, uh, one of the legends from the world of rock and roll and heavy metal. He's a member of the, the Heavy Metal Hall of Fame who just put out his memoirs. Uh, it's called Heavy Tales, The Metal, The Music, and The Madness, as lived by my man, Johnny Zazula. Johnny, welcome to Tricky Kid Radio. How you doing? Good, man. Good, uh, good. We, you and I have a lot to get into, so let's just go ahead and jump right on into it here. Uh, let me see here. One thing, you know, the thing that I, first of all, I absolutely love the book. Um, I think I told you this whenever we were in Florida, uh, was, you know, I grew up in Texas. Um, I was 13 in 1987 when you guys Put out the first uh, Megaforce record, so I guess it would be overkills under the influence. Um, so I was your target demographic, um, and but one thing that I've heard a million times over the years is that uh, legendary trip that Metallica took from California to New York. Mm. Now I always was under the impression that they did that to come to specifically and only to record a record. But after reading your book, I didn't realize that you basically just brought them to the East Coast and kind of adopted them for a while. Pretty much, that's what happened. Uh, the truth is we were promoters at the time, young promoters. We had 12 shows lined up that we thought they could play on. We had shows with Venom, shows with Vandenberg, shows with Twisted Sister, and we thought that, hey, you know, we could bring Metallica right into Lemoore's in Brooklyn, you know, and have them play with Twisted Sister. It, it was a great opportunity for them. Albums and all that stuff, believe it or not, they were dancing around in my head. But I don't think it was conversation yet. Okay. And uh, they came basically to play some gigs and. Just be part of the excitement. Well, see, see, see that, that was the part that I thought that the book really succeeds with and illuminates. Because I'm not the only one, of course, that's heard that story a million times. But I, I for whatever reason, I thought that, you know, everything was in place. They were just coming up for a couple of weeks to record and then go back. I, I didn't realize that, again, like I said, you, they were basically were living at your house. You kind of, you kind of adopted them as your own uh, children. And uh, uh, tell me this, uh, what was it about that demo that you heard that just made you want to put it all on the line for? Well, that's been told a thousand times. And what basically made us put it on the line, us being my wife, Marshall, who was my partner for 42 years and myself, um, was that the music was so cutting edge, was so fresh. It was not done before. 
you know, we were very well aware of the, of the British movement of heavy metal, uh, the new wave of, of British heavy metal. You know, we, we were all plugged into that in, in my circles. And when the Metallica demo hit us, it was like, oh my God, this is America's answer to this movement in, in Europe that's going on right now. And we could really take America by storm if we could harness this energy. For sure. <clears throat> how, how were you guys getting turned on to that stuff, though? Like all the European <laughs> stuff? There was a lot of tape trading going on, Roy. Right, right. Okay. And uh, the tapes were just flying in and out of my shop. We had a little flea market down in the Route 18 uh, flea market in uh, East Brunswick, New Jersey. And just tapes were flying in and out. And we were selling tapes as if they were records. People were bringing in boxes of tapes and letting them go. And people were bringing in tapes saying, hey, here it is, Johnny. Here it is, Johnny. Here it is, Johnny. Here it is, Marsha. So it was a normal part of life at the time. And I... it was normal to look at Metallica as a tape being brought to us. Okay. Were there any other bands around that time that you thought about be before Metallica that you thought of kind of doing the same thing with? We were knocked off our asses. Okay. You know, it took a lightning bolt for me to move and go flying after Metallica the way I did. You know, that was to me the answer to the answer, you know, but at the time Anthrax were following us and Overkill were, were talking to us about just getting on shows and stuff and becoming part of the scene. Remember there was no record company. Right, right, right. Well, and so, um, obviously, again, you know, we want to we want to talk about things that that haven't been over talked to death. But I would be remiss if I didn't mention, of course, the, the legendary Roseland Ballroom showcase uh, that really kind of put a rocket attached to everything. Um, I love how the book starts with no spoilers for those who haven't read it. I love how the very first chapter says it's the beginning of the end. <laughs> And you point to that night. So, so, so talk to me about that for a second. Well, Marsha and I had promoted shows from 100 people, I should say 25 people, that that night, like a few thousand people. And they had come to see the headliner Raven. Metallica were on second and Anthrax were opening up. But these were all three of my bands. It was a showcase. And it was a showcase at the time for, uh, I, I guess, Megaforce Records. Uh, you know, we had had three albums out at that particular moment. And uh, it, it was time to see if we could get the band signed to a major label. And that was the thing to do. You know, you have this little indie label, Megaforce, and you try to get it on a bigger label. Uh, in those days, the bigger labels were Atlantic Records, Electra Records, uh, CBS, you know, the, the Island, and that sure. kind of stuff. Sure, sure. And uh, what happened was everybody came down. I didn't invite one of them. <laughs> they all, everybody was in town, was at the show. And uh, where it's a big success to sign a band to any one label. After that show, we had Island hanging on us for Anthrax. Atlantic wanted Raven. And Electra basically came in and took. And uh, Metallica. Well, I'm glad, I'm glad that you mentioned, and the operative word there is took. So it, at this point, you mentioned it in the book, whatever. This is the part I, I've always wanted to try to put the pieces together on. Mm -hmm. Is that 
you uh, and Marsha basically, you know, you, you double mortgage your house, you do all this stuff, you really to pull oh. the, the trigger on Metallica, right? Okay. It wasn't, it wasn't thank you, but you know what? It's very easy to understand in this world what someone has to do when they see a brighter passage in front of them. Right, right. And to be honest with you, we were doing everything right and better than right. In fact, we were making miraculous moves, but we never had the money. And I'm always looking for money to give them an inch, trying to raise money to give right. them uh, footed in, in, in the door. And it, it got to the point where maybe it was a much better uh, ray of light for the band to see management that had bands that were already playing big arenas, to have management that already saw the light, that wasn't finding the light. Right, you know? sure, sure. Um, a little patience could have helped, but it wasn't there. And they went on, and they went on to a label that had the money and the power and the staffing to do what had to be done. So it was very understandable. Now, when it came to Anthrax, the relationship went on to last 11 years. When it came to Raven, the, the relationship went on to last a few more years. But it all ended, you know, sort of in, in, in a different way. For sure. No, I, to I totally get it. I guess I just wanted to know, um, like, so I just thought it was just kind of strange that, you know, you put up these people, they're staying with it's your not friends. Strange. So what? It's not really strange, Roy. Okay. You know, this is the way of the world. <laughs> I see that in the book. It's the way of the world. Live with it. I got it. I got it. I just wanted to know, like, how you found out about it, because apparently they were making some moves without you knowing about it. You had to be a fool that night not to know. Okay. I had a lot of people whispering in my ear. You know, it, this was, to me, no surprise. Okay. Okay. That's fair. That's fair. But one thing I think is great, you mentioned about how the relationship continues. Uh, you guys you still have a, 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 a friendship uh, and a relationship with the guys in Metallica. Um, Absolutely. And uh, I, I thought it'd be kind of neat that I know that you guys went out to San Francisco a few years ago mm -hmm. for record store day. And you guys got to go back to the old Carlson house uh, where the Metallica was basically living um, uh, during the recording of of, uh, of Master of Puppets and all that. Can you walk me through a little bit about some of the highlights of that day? Well, it was a, a beautiful, beautiful day. The band were wonderfully delightful. <laughs> I mean, we got along hugs and kisses and I got to sit with James for quite a while and reminisce and talk about stuff. It was one of the first times we were together in a very long time. We've seen each other at shows, but we never really found each other. Here we are, here's James, here's Johnny. Let's just sit down on a chair and table and talk for a bunch of time. You know, Marsha was getting like super, super motherly hugs and it was all sincere and wonderful. Lars had his, it was wonderful. That's all I could tell you. That's awesome. Uh, That's awesome. Him, and it was good for us. So, so who, who put all that together? Not me. 
but in terms of like you, when you received an invitation to come out to the West Coast, where did it come from? I have no idea. Metallica's office. Right. Q Prime. Okay. All right. Okay. But I thought that was just I kind know. of. <laughs> <laughs> so, how, so how long had it been since you had seen any James or Lars at, at that point? I don't remember. I don't remember. Okay. But and I think. I see them. Right, but in terms, like you're saying, in terms of an actual like sit down, like you and I are doing right now, it'd been. We're not bosom buddies. Right. We don't go to the movies together and do any of those fantasy things. When we run into each other, we're very, very civil and lovely to each other and warm and loving. And that's really what matters. There's no bullshit stuff. It's just the real stuff. That's right. That's right. But I, th- I thought it was kind of cool, of course, that, you know, they still didn't forget. And I was glad to see you there and glad y'all got the invitation. And, you know, uh, it, the whole the whole day was about the history of the band. And, of course, obviously, you and Marsha being a, a, such a major part of that. I thought it was just that that happened. Roy, what happened is they came around in a circle. In order for them to say goodbye to us, they also had to actually dislike us a little bit. You know, I'm being very honest. And that dislike went in a big circle to really like very much and appreciate very much and understand what we did very much. So now we're on the common ground. It took a few years to get there, but now's what matters. When we go to our maker, we'll go to our maker knowing the truth and loving each other. That's wonderful. That's awesome. Um, um, I, I did just watch... Uh, Charlie uh, has put together, of course, this, speaking about the history of, of a band, uh, uh, Anthrax celebrates 40 years uh, this year, unbelievably. And of course, they're doing this little video series that kind of chronicles their history. Um, part two, you are featured very large, my friend. Uh, almost the entire episode is dedicated to you and you feature very large there. Uh, talk about your participation with that. You got to see part two. No, there's part one and then there's part two. The reality of life is that we know anthrax from the time they were little puppies. You know, and they went from man puppies to what they are today. And 11 years of sharing somebody's life, you get to know an awful lot about them. In, in the book, the beautiful thing about anthrax is that it was so hard for us to part from each other. We were so inbred and so entwined, and not inbred, entwined in each lives that we couldn't even separate from each other. We didn't know how to do it. We had to get a, a lawyer not to negotiate against us and not an accountant to negotiate against us, but to arbitrate and, and, and sit on counsel with both of us to get what's fair out of us so that we could actually walk our own ways. Right, It right. was very, very interesting, uh, the separation of Anthrax and Zazula, and it was uh, at a good time. That was a good time. 11 years is, is a long time. Hell yeah, man. Well, I, I just love it, though, too, though. I had, you know, again, I... We had such a good time whenever we were at your place and you were so kind to us and, and so generous with, with your time and space and and being there and seeing everything. 
you anthrax had such a has such a, a huge presence in in your professional history and i could feel it whenever i was there not just not just because of the things that i was seeing you know uh one thing that i really really like though is um I love the idea that these guys were so young that they had heard about your store, Rock and Roll Heaven, out at Old Bridge Militia, and the idea of them taking these pilgrimages out there just to buy new records and kind of find out what you were up to and and uh, and to try to make that happen. And of course, there's the infamous IHOP thing, but I, I'll let I'll let the Anthrax Part Two video tell that story. So please go. But uh, so, OK, so moving on, though, um, I back to the label thing for a second, because one thing you mentioned that I really liked was this is that uh, I'll have to ask some questions that I already know the answer to. But I want our listeners to kind of be able to understand. OK, a lot of them, you know, when I talk about labels and stuff, because I've worked for record labels in the past, they, they may not get the idea of a small label becoming a part of a bigger label they would want to know why couldn't the indie label sustain itself all by itself? Well, that's a good question. It's a good question. The first thing is, is it's the money, it's the manpower. You know, you, you can't admit to a band that you're their be all end all. You, if you're going to take it all the way, you got to have, chiefs and Indians, and you got to have people planted in all parts of the field and everywhere at radio, at retail, you know, distribution, to have weird distribution is a, a big deal. Why did I go to Atlantic Records? Weird distribution. Can't beat it, you know? And I knew the people who were working at Weird Distribution at Atlantic, and they were very good to me. And they did some very nice things that really made the label grow at Atlantic. So when you say, why do labels do that? There are labels like Season of Mist, you know, that will, I, I don't know how they work. I'm sure they have a uh, different distribution than it's not in, it's not in house. But what, what, what happens is they have bands that are growing that are selling very well and they're selling enough to keep them going. Now, remember in my day, sell 30,000 records, total failure. You're walking the Bowery and looking for a cheap bottle of Swiss up. You're done. <laughs> right. <laughs> now you sell 30,000 records and people are offering you $100,000 record deals, $200,000 record deals, you know, because that is in colored vinyl and this and that and that and that could be 30,000 records times 10 could be or more. You know what that adds up to in math, right? Right. It's enough. And you sell enough of these little amounts. But let me ask you this. Are the bands eating on 30,000? Nope. <laughs> you know, uh, you're not eating sometimes when you sell 100,000 records. That's true. Because you're still paying back the record company on the other hand. Right, right, right. Well, I, but, I, think, I think that's a, that's a great deal. because I, I do a whole series on here about this. I, I spent a, a many, many years working for, for different labels and stuff. And I try to make this a bit of infotainment as well you know um i wanted to ask you this chapter seven in the book is only five and a half pages long and i, I gotta be, uh, be honest pro, pro, out of all the bands that i love if i 
picked up the book, I probably went straight to the chapter about SOD, right? Okay. And that chapter is only five and a half pages long. And so I was hoping that you could maybe could, could expand a little bit about that. When you think about the SOD experience, what is like the first thing that you think about? What, what is the cherished memory that you have about that? Look, Marsha loved SOD. She said, get involved with them and make them do what you have to do ASAP. This is the cat's meow. And I said, you're 100% right. SOD were probably my favorite project out of the whole Megaforce. Wow. But they were the quickest lived project at Megaforce. Right. And they were the biggest, I don't know what words you could use on your show, but mine effing uh, experience, because as much as you wanted them to be huge, it wasn't going to happen because it would always self-destruct and it just wouldn't happen. And don't ask me why, because I don't want to go there. Okay. I'll tell you one great SOD story. That's all I asked for. Good. Before Cliff passed, Anthrax and Metallica were on tour. And I was on tour with them in Europe for some of the shows. And they played a huge place in Holland. Now, I was blown away because at that show, Anthrax almost sold as much uh, merch as Metallica. And I always measured everything by merchandise. And then I'm feeling really, really, really good. And somebody comes up to me and said to me, yeah, but who was selling the SOD in the parking lots? They sold 20 times more than both bands. <laughs> you know? <laughs> now, we, the band didn't get a penny. I didn't get a penny. Nobody got a penny. But just to show you what I had to live with, just being at the source of that. Right, right. Because no telling what SOT, if under proper circumstances, probably could have been one of the biggest of them all. We're going to take a quick break and be right back with more Tricky Kid Radio. While we take a short break, let me assure you this isn't an ad you can afford to skip. Simply be entranced by my voice so you can hear from these great sponsors. Tricky Kid Radio is distributed by iHeartRadio and is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and the Google Play Store. Subscribe for free on the iHeartRadio app or on your favorite podcast platform. Subscribe to Tricky Kid TV on YouTube.com for a stunning visual look at all the fun we have here, plus exclusive content, short films, and more. Follow us on social media. Our Twitter handle, at TrickyKid2, type Tricky Kid Radio Podcast on Facebook, and DJ Tricky Kid on Instagram. Speaking of which, subscribe now to Roy Turner's alter ego DJ Tricky Kid's amazing Twitch channel at twitch.tv for retro gaming, exclusive DJ sets, as well as DJ instruction and live streaming of Tricky Kid Radio, where you, the audience, can participate and interact with our guests. Don't miss a single stream, so you can be up to date on the latest on all things Tricky Kid. Subscribe now at twitch.tv slash DJ Tricky Kid. 
I'm here with my friend Roy. He is talking all things pieces of me. This is Tiffany here. To always, always tune in to Tricky Kid Radio with Roy Turner. Once again, your host, Roy Turner. I remember King's X and Gary Waldman. Gary Waldman at Megaforce, I know, took over a lot of the creative and the dealing with Sam. I, I think I'm correct, uh, at least in the later years. I don't remember. How do you like that? And it was so hands on Marsha and me. I don't know. Well, and that's fair. I just feel like obviously I wanted to be very accurate in the in the telling of that. And I just kind of know the answer, Roy. I actually don't know the answer. No worries. No I worries. You read and let me know. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I will. I will. I'll say, you know what? You know what, Johnny? I actually found out the answer to this. Um, in all honesty, uh, Johnny, did did Sam Taylor ever seem like a crook to you? <laughs> What an interview question. I have to be honest with you. Sam never did anything bad to me. I don't know what he seemed like to the outside, to the inside world. Sam was okay with me. He was a creative guy. He did great videos. He produced great albums. What happened between him and the band took a long time to hit the surface, I'll tell you that, because everything looked great for a long time. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. He was good to me, quote unquote. Well, that's good, man. So, th so there was never a moment where you were kind of like, Marsha, we got we to gotta look out for this dude. This dude doesn't quite seem on the level. That never happened? It may have happened when John and Marsha left the building. That things got a little tainted. I don't know. Let's see. Let's see. Under the Zazula regime, everybody seemed to be in euphoria. When, when was the last time that you talked to Doug or, or Jerry or, or Ty? Well, it's really sad because I was not feeling well. I promoted a King's X show in New Jersey that was really packed. And I wasn't feeling well and I had to leave early. I had so much fantasies about sitting and talking to them and putting my arm around Doug and, and Jerry and Ty. It was so heartbreaking to me that I had to leave early. And it was a bad night because I was getting a lot of crap from the owners of the venue because nobody was there early. They all came at 11 and I left at 10.30 at a quarter to 11, saw the parking lot jammed. And I said, son of a bitch. <laughs> right. Son of a bitch. I had another big one and now I'm leaving. I won't even be here for the glory of it. You know, <laughs> and I won't be able to see the boys, but that's well, his life. Well, I tell you what, we when we come, when I, I will be bringing them, or I'll be with them to, to, to in California, uh, in Florida, soon when it's all this nonsense ends, and I would, I, I will make that happen. I assure you. Okay. I will make that happen. That'll be nice. They would love to see you, Johnny. That'll be nice. Uh, Without no spoilers about the book, you tell an amazingly an amazing story uh, about being in Amsterdam. Uh, again, I don't want to give anything away, but it, it does. It, it involves a very specific slice of cake, is all I'll say. Well, that was a bad cake. And that story, I literally was howling out loud as I'm reading this, really? laughing, and also horrified. Because I, I had a similar experience a couple of times with that. 
Uh, I was hoping maybe you could share another just outrageous, like when you think about the touring that you did that maybe didn't make it into the book, something just for our listeners. When you think about crazy touring, fill me in on something fun. I've, I've talked off book about uh, Overkill when they finished their album and they were up in Ithaca, New York and these jocks started harassing Bobby Blitz at the bar and Bobby Blitz is like getting really next to being assaulted and he takes a bottle <laughs> it's really pathetic but he had no choice. They were about to come around him. So he takes one guy down and everybody leaves the bar and says, let's get out of here. And they go back to an apartment that we had rented, which I lived in, by the way, up in Ithaca, New York. They went up to the apartment after. About two hours passed by. Everybody's sleeping. There's the roadies, which is the Old Bridge Militia. You don't. Don't want to mess with an old bridge militia. They're not police, but they are evil, evil, evil when they get woken up in in the middle of the night. I'll tell you that. (laughs) Well, what happened was these jocks come smashing through the front door of my apartment with baseball bats and start beating on everybody inside the apartment. It was unbelievable. Now, I wasn't there. I happened to be home. (laughs) <laughs> but I'm responsible for this apartment. Right, right. I'm responsible. Well, they all broke in and somebody woke up, God rest his soul, bulldozer Bob. And another guy, Reb. Well, they got up and I will tell you the end of the story. The I get there the next day. The lamps are broken. The beds are broken. Everything's turned over. The closet doors are caved in. Pieces of flesh are hanging from the sides of the walls. Oh my God. And the worst I got out of the old bridge and overkill was Bobby Blitz had, I think, a black eye. Wow. But they all went to the hospital, those kids. Oh my God. The next day I knew it because we all went to celebrate, <laughs> believe it or not, our survival, to the local restaurant diner. And there were a bunch of them sitting at the table all beat up with bandages on them and this and that. And we just sat down and ate and they just ate like nothing happened. <laughs> oh my God. Old Bridge, New Jersey. <laughs> New Jersey. Now, that has nothing to do with the 54 Al Jorgensen stories, I could tell you. Well, yeah, I would imagine. I got a couple myself, by the way, but I would love to hear one from you. I won't tell an Al Jorgensen story, but and- I will tell you there were 54 at least. <laughs> and they were wild. I, I'll tell you one. I believe it to be true, because, but I didn't know what hotel we were in until it made sense. We were in the Peabody, known for its ducks, that do the I, little walk. Right. You know about that? The ducks do the little march. I do, yeah, of course. In the fountain at one of the Peabody's, there's more than one, there was a golden duck in the pond. Al loved it so much, he took it to his room. <laughs> oh, my God. 
that's nothing, but that's a little something. Well, I'll 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 share something with you. I'm sure you can't. I'm sure you can top this. But my the old, one of the only times I ever met Al was when he was doing his Revolting Cox project, and I was a very very young guy, and I was friends with a promoter who was putting him up. Long story short, some girls come back to the hotel. Apparently, so do their boyfriends. Uh, and at one point, I actually witnessed. Uh, Al shaving their heads like while one of them slept and then when the boyfriend tried to interrupt he grabbed the guy and shoved his tongue down his mouth that was one night with Al back in back in the in the 1990s I'm sure you could you can outdo that one well, I, I I have to tell you Roy I never heard of anything as, as terrible as that in my life. Oh, come on. I, come, I, don't, I don't believe a word of that. <laughs> I never heard anything like that. I, I will never sit here and uh, talk nonsense about that guy. Um, I, I will say this about Al Jorgensen. The guy is brilliant. Oh, totally, totally. He's one... Hell of a musician, one hell of a producer, one hell of an engineer. And uh, I worked with the man for five years. And let me tell you, they were five exciting years. Oh, yeah, I would imagine for sure. And I hope you understand that that wasn't me uh, disrespecting oh, no. him in any, in any way. Oh, no. I managed some interesting people in my life. I understand people having stories and sharing things. I understand. Totally. Were you and Marsha at the at the final Slayer shows at the Forum? No. Okay. Because because I, I I wasn't sure if you and I had spoken then because Ministry opened that show, and I had a really really great ch chat with Al uh, that night that was that was really cool. He's he still got it for sure. Are oh, you are you are you still in touch with him? Never speak to Al. Y'all don't talk at all. No, not because we don't like each other. I don't think. Okay. Because we have really. I don't think he has anything to say to me and I have nothing to say to him. <laughs> fair, fair enough. We're just two souls in the night. That's right. Well, now, uh, one thing I wanted to mention or, or kind of wind up here is that uh, you sold Megaforce to a long trusted employee who is still current, who currently runs and owns Megaforce. Yes. So for those out there that carry the purest flag for Megaforce, uh, good news is that the, the label is in good hands. Uh, so to talk to me a little bit about that, about like, how did that come about and what, and, 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 and how does that work? Well, I'll just tell you this. It happened right before 9-11, right before. And the way 9-11 felt is the way I felt in July of that year. I was just not feeling it. You know, I write in a book, I tell how I'm a manic depressive. And I really can get very, very dark. And grunge had pretty much just taken the zap out of me. I just had had it and metal was getting so boring to me because there's only one Metallica, only one Anthrax, only one Slayer and only one Venom, you know. There's, there's, there's even only one Merciful Fate, you know? Right, right, right. One King's X. Yes. <laughs> one king does and it's just like I gotta keep on finding these bands you know I gotta keep on finding these bands and I mean I went I got Warren Haynes 
lead guitarist of the Allman Brothers. I mean, God, enough was enough for me. And I said, it's time to just chill out. And I put, wanted to play with my toys. I had a, a huge collection of uh, Nightmare Before Christmas stuff, etc. So anyway, it was time for me to make a move. Money was not the reason for me to do my deal. As I say in the book, it was to the longevity of Megaforce. It was to keep Missy going because Missy was wonderful. She served me so well for so many years. God bless her. She had, she had to just take the ball and run with it and see what she could do with it. She deserved it so. And that's the Megaforce departure story. I had enough. Well, are you still involved in, in, in any capacity at all? None. None. None, uh, except on Sundays, they have me come in and dust off the place a little bit. I, I thought I, I, I thought you were cleaning toilets or something. I, when toilets I on Mondays. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. That's so awesome, man. Well, I, um, you know, I was actually, of course, in this amazing room that we're seeing, and I, I, I don't know why I, I didn't expect it, but once I came inside and I saw all the great stuff, and you still got a few uh, Nightmare Before Christmas items there in the, uh, in that room. I oh. wanted to, I wanted to ask you if after you got your pets and your and your family secure, if that building, that room you're in right now, were to catch on fire, what is what is the one thing you grab? I grabbed through the computer and grabbed my picture of you. <laughs> <laughs> what else could it be, Johnny? What uh, Literally, what else could it be? Uh, I, I got to tell you something. Uh, nothing is so valuable to hold back and escape. You know, I probably grabbed my phone. I grabbed my daughter, who's in the room with me, Ricky. And... Uh, Hi, Ricky. Good to see you. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> and we go off to some other place unknown you know uh i don't know what to say maybe a not man head i think i would take with me that's one of a kind so right so yeah, yeah it's an it's the original yeah i know i i couldn't believe it that, that was the one that ozzy wore in the video right the one and doug pinnock wore in a picture that you haven't seen but i don't know where it is it's a it's a ron akiyama photo I'm hoping you. I'm hoping to get that because I would like to include that in our project. Of course, that'd yeah, you may get that. That'd be huge. Well, the, uh, the last but not least thing, obviously, I wanted to mention, of course, that you know, uh, it took a village uh, to run Megaforce Records, and you had uh, the absolute best partner in crime uh, through that whole run there. And I just wanted to say, uh, you know, obviously, my love and condolences to you and your family. For you know, we, you, I know you lost Marsha earlier. Uh, this year uh and i just wanted to say rest in power to her and uh and i look forward to honoring her uh extensively in our king's x project because i know what uh because knowing does she deserve it but uh she was such a big part of of all that happening so uh the book again it's called heavy tales the metal the music the madness as lived by my man my friend john zazula and Johnny, I wanted to share this with our, our viewers as well and listeners. Uh, it's disappearing on you. It just disappears when you pull oh, it up. I'm sorry. There it is. Can you see that? Okay. So on the inside of my copy from John, it says, Yo, Roy, worst interview ever. <laughs> Johnny, I will cherish this for 
the rest of my days and beyond, my friend. Thank you very much for this. All right. Roy, it's always a pleasure, man. Distributed by I This has been a presentation of Tricky Kid Media Originals. Distributed by iHeartRadio. Created and directed by Roy Turner. Edited and mastered by Marcus Miller. Theme music by The Buckcats. Original score by Jocelyn Hunt. Artwork by Antora Sandy. Marketing and PR by Francesca Miles. Tricky Kid Radio is hosted by Roy Turner with introductions by me, Dana French. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us next week.